Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway List Brainiac Athon. We're talking about Chapter 4 of, of Human Bondage. Not much money, not many eggs, but how terrible is this living situation? Fix the Blue said, My first impressions of Aunt Louisa is that she might actually be quite kind and caring. She was worried about him walking with his clubfoot, possibly being scared of sleeping alone at night. There may be hope for poor Philip yet. Yeah, there was really two ways to interpret that, though, because both of those things might also be a bother to her if they're a problem for Philip. Like, if he can't walk well, that's going to be annoying for her. And if he can't sleep well at night, that's going to be annoying for her. So, I'm still not. I'm still reserving judgment. Could go either way. You're right. Those could be signs that she does care. They could also be signs that... She's just worried about numero uno. Looks like you might be right, our treat. It seems like money is rather tight in the Carey household. That or Mr. Carey is incredibly stingy. Perhaps the Careys might not be so terrible after all. Andy, your optimism, optimism is infectious. I was feeling pretty bleak for Philip before today's podcast and chapter. Anyway, they're certainly not evil. Step-parent material, just a bit oblivious and awkward. Well, for the moment at least oblivious and awkward and I think they're just they seem like they seem they seem scared not scared they seem to have their reservations about the whole situation you know they've just inherited a kid they don't know what to do they don't know if they can afford it they're they're worried uh one thing that stuck out for me is the innocent innocence of a child and their ability to live in the moment. Philip was described as enjoying the journey. I thought that was quite nice, given the sad nature of his current circumstances. I am Norwegian says, at least the aunt seems really nice. I loved the detail of her being just as shy of Philip as he was of her. My impression of the uncle is continuing to dwindle, though. Money's tight, so he always just takes holidays alone. The aunt seems like a second-class citizen in her own home. I raised my eyebrows at the fire being lit whenever Mr. Carey had a coal, but not when Mrs. Carey had one. I know, right? Um, ugh, I, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? I guess, like, life was like that then. They would have justified it by him saying something like, you know, I'm the one out there earning the money for the household, so if I get sick, the money stops. Something like that. But, uh, very unfair very unfair Jan Brunt says I'm loving the writing so far but now I'm worried that this is going to be one of those dire memoirs about a terrible childhood the title is not exactly inspiring confidence in a happy ending yeah true <laughs> of human bondage doesn't actually make me think he's going to have a happy free life also what a change of tone and setting from the last two books this book has very definite british sensibility which i appreciate by the way on my part i like a good old british sensibility jp guthrie said i can't tell if the whole egg situation is quite nice or quite insulting haha -ha. yeah <laughs> jan brunt said it's not nice it's literally one bite of an egg true true um matic strick said 
Matic Strick 1, sorry, said Mr. Carey was making up the fire when Philip came in and he pointed out to his nephew that there were two pokers. One was large and bright and polished and was called the vicar. The other was much smaller and had evidently passed through many fires, was called the curate. Do vicars and curates have a beef I don't know about? Or is this supposed to be sympathetic to the curates and acknowledging the work they do? From a bit of googling, I figured out that curates are often specially employed to help the vicar, so I'm guessing the latter, but maybe Mr. Carey is annoyed with his. Jan Brunt says, I think it has to do with the relative importance of the positions and the size of the pokers. The big poker is the higher status vicar, the curate is the little assistant. Swims to the mum fishy said, I searched vicar versus cleric as well. This article gave him a good overview. Pertinent to a curate. As members of the clergy, curates were regarded as gentlemen, despite their official standing, the subservient nature of their position, and the paltry incomes caused some of the gentry and the peers to hold them in disregard. I think this passage gives us insight into the uncle's character. He is above poking at the fire and requires his curate to perform his duty. He's, he's got a right-hand man that he, he sends in to do all his dirty work. Acoustic Eel says, So I'm an Egypt... And it took me a whole chapter to figure out that Mrs. Carey and Aunt Louise are the same person, and that Mr. Carey and the vicar are the same person. I'm on the level now, but dang, that was a confusing couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know if Mr. and Mrs. Carey are supposed to be awkward or funny awkward, but I'm getting big The Office slash Curb Your Enthusiasm vibes from their interactions with Philip. I keep laughing at what would be awkward times if it, if I were in the room watching the action play out. This discussion so far today has used the word awkward so many times. Everyone has described at least one thing in this chapter as awkward. I'm, I'm guessing that's like the defining trait of this chapter was awkwardness. Like Mrs. Carey thinking traveling to London is just so tiring or going to fill up Philip's door a second time to make sure he can pour out his water. Oh, wait, I think I skipped something. I keep laughing at the at what... At, what would be awkward times if I were in the room watching the action play out, like Mrs. Carey, thinking travelling to London is just so tiring, or going to Philip's door a second time to make sure he can pour out his water, or the whole dinner sequence, Philip's chair is too short and they look at each other unsure of what to do. They are wishy-washy about having him sit on the Bible, but then they throw the Book of Common Prayer on top and call it good, and not at all blasphemous, right into the part with the top of the egg dead i could not stop laughing the whole time poor philip just wanted to re-emphasize that but alas but also lol replying to what you said yesterday in the podcast and you're right about the age and relative maturity of kids you know them from teaching how them how to write and i meanwhile meanwhile have avoided teaching as long as i can at my old day job i saw many kids in passing though i never worked directly with them and i constantly underestimated their ages like i would think a fifth grader was in third grade or a 10 year old was seven all the time um, right. I feel like it's the opposite for me. Like, when I think... I recently had a new student sign up for tutoring and the mother said he's nine. And I'm thinking, oh, nine? Bloody hell, what am I going to teach a nine-year-old? But then when I started talking to him, he was very mature and I didn't feel like I had to really, like, pander down anything to him or, like, you know, dumb it down too much. He seems as smart as i don't know like a you know a young teenager i suppose um so when they say that philip is 
nine, was it? Or ten? How old is Philip? Like, they're treating him like he's four. But really, he's just a little dude. You know? He's not useless. Swim said the mum fishy said... Oh, wait, I've already read that comment. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> Simply Productive said, My biggest impression in this... Has anyone else considered how tiny and insignificant the top of an egg is? The top. Now, if I, it were the bottom, that would be a different thing. But good grief. <laughs> I think we need to... Look, we're all a bit stuck on the top of this egg. I think we need to really think about this. So it's a hard-boiled egg. Or is it a soft-boiled egg? You know? And is he... I suppose they cut off the top, right, so that you can dunk bread in it. Is that what you do? So that's, it's got to be enough of the top that it's reached the yolk. So it's not just like the tip top. It's like, it'd be the top third of the egg, I reckon. They've given him a third of an egg, which would all be whites. But, you know, maybe it's a quarter. It's a quarter of the egg because it is the sharpest point of the egg. They've given him a quarter of an egg. It's a mouthful. It's not just like a little sip. It's a, it's a you'd, you'd have to chew it, I think. Um, but, I mean, maybe we need to get some eggs out, guys, and do a bit of experimenting. And before we move on to the next chapter, really just figure out how much egg did Philip get. Because I don't know if I'm comfortable to keep reading otherwise. Look, I'm going to read one more chapter. But if we don't have in the discussion a complete in-depth analysis on how much at the top of an egg is, I think I might have to stop reading. Lots of rich symbolism in this chapter, says Simply Productive. As the daughter of a church staff member, I can attest to the terrible pay. Across nearly all Christian denominations, generally speaking, you don't get into religion for money. The notable exception to this is, of course, megachurches, which really don't exist until recently. But I digress, the money is shite, so we can expect some serious moral grandstanding from the uncle moving forward. Luckily, his wife seems to have a better head for attending to Philip so far. And I hope he finds a good mother figure in her. Still wondering what this book will be about. Yeah, that's a good point. What is this bloody book about? Alright, let's read the next chapter. I'm, I don't know if you can hear in my voice, but I'm mostly asleep right now. <clears throat> I left it too late. I got stuck in the video game vortex and now it's one thirty in the morning chapter five goes like this philip came gradually to know the people he was to live with and by fragments of conversation some of it not meant for his ears learned a good deal about both deal both about himself and about his dead parents parents sorry philip's father had been much younger than the vicar of blackstable after a brilliant career at St. Luke's Hospital, he was put on the staff and presently began to earn money in considerable sums. He spent it freely. When the parson set about restoring his church and asked his brother for a subscription, he was surprised by receiving a couple of hundred pounds. Mr. Carey, thrifty by inclination and economical by necessity, accepted it with mingled feelings. He was envious of his brother because he could afford to give so much pleased for the sake of his church and vaguely irritated by a generosity which seemed almost ostentatious. Then Henry Carey married a patient, a beautiful girl but penniless, an orphan with no near relations but of good family, and there was an array of fine friends at the wedding. The parson, on his visits to her when he came to London, held himself with reserve. He felt shy with her, and in his heart he resented her great beauty. She dressed more magnificently than 
became the then than became the wife of a hard-working surgeon, and the charming furniture of her house, the flowers among which she lived even in winter, suggested an extravagance which which he deplored. He heard her talk of entertainments she was going to, and as he told his wife on getting home again, it was impossible to accept hospitality without making some return. He had seen grapes in the dining room that must have cost at least eight shillings a pound, and at luncheon he had been given asparagus two months before it was ready in the vicarage garden. Now all he had anticipated was come to pass. The vicar felt the satisfaction of the prophet who saw fire and brimstone consume the city which would not mend its way to his warning. Poor Philip was practically penniless, and that was the good of his mother's fine friends now. And what was the good of his mother's fine friends now? <clears throat> he heard that his father's extravagance was really criminal, and it was a mercy that Providence had seen fit to take his mother, his dear mother, to itself. She had no more idea of money than the child. When Philip had been a week at Blackstable, an incident happened which seemed to irritate his uncle very much. One morning he found on the breakfast table a small packet which had been sent on by post from the late Mrs. Carey's house in London. It was addressed to her. When the parson opened it, he found a dozen photographs of Mrs. Carey. They showed the head and shoulders only, and her hair was more plainly done than usual, low on the forehead, which gave her an unusual look. The face was thin and worn, but no illness could impair the beauty of her features. There was in the large dark eyes a sadness which Philip did not remember. The first sight of the dead woman gave Mr. Carey a little shock, but this was quickly followed by perplexity. The photographs seemed quite recent, and he could not imagine who had ordered them. "'Do you know anything about these, Philip?' he asked. "'I remember Mamma said she'd been taken,' he answered. "'Miss Watkins scolded her. She said I wanted the boy to have something to remember me by when he grows up.' Mr. Carey looked at Philip for an instant. The child spoke in a clear treble. He recalled the words, but they meant nothing to him. "'You'd better take one of the photographs and keep it in your room,' said Mr. Carey. "'I'll put the others away.' He sent one to Miss Watkin, and she wrote and explained how they came to be taken. One day Mrs. Carey was lying in bed, but she was feeling a little better than usual, and the doctor in the morning had seemed hopeful. Emma had taken the child out, and the maids were downstairs in the basement. Suddenly Mrs. Carey felt desperately alone in the world. A great fear seized her that she would not recover from the confinement which she was expecting in a fortnight. Her son was nine years old. How could he be expected to remember her? She could not bear to think that he would grow up and forget, forget her utterly, and she had loved him so passionately, because he was weakly and deformed, and because he was her child. She had no photographs of herself taken since her marriage, and that was ten years before. She wanted her son to know what she looked like at the end. He could not forget her then, not forget her utterly. She knew that if she called her maid and told her she wanted to get up, the maid would prevent her and perhaps send for the doctor, and she had not the strength now to struggle or argue. She got out of bed and began to dress herself. She had been on her back so long that her legs gave way beneath her, and then the soles of her feet tingled so that she could hardly bear to put them on the ground. But she went on. She was unused to doing her own hair, and when she raised her arms and began to brush it, she felt faint. She could never do it as her maid did. It was beautiful hair, very fine, 
and of a deep, rich gold. Her eyebrows were straight and dark. She put on a black shirt, skirt, sorry, but chose the bodice of the evening dress which she liked best. It was of a white damask, which was fashionable in those days. She looked at herself in the glass. Her face was very pale, but her skin was clear. She had never had much colour, and this had always made the redness of her beautiful mouth emphatic. She could not restrain a sob, but she could not afford to be sorry for herself. She was feeling already desperately tired, and she put on the furs which Henry had given her the Christmas before. She had been so proud of them and so happy then, and slipped downstairs with a beating, with beating heart. She got safely out of the house and drove to a photographer. She paid for a dozen pho- photographs. She was obliged to ask for a glass of water in the middle of a sitting, and the assistant, seeing she was ill, suggested that she could come another day, but she insisted on staying until the end. At last it was finished, and she drove back again to the dingy little house in Kensington, which she hated with all her heart. It was a horrible house to die in. She found the front doorstep, and when she drove up, the maid and Emma ran down the steps to help her. They had been frightened when they found her room empty. At first, they thought she must have gone to Miss Watkin, and the cook was sent round. Miss Watkin came back with her and was waiting anxiously in the drawing room. She came downstairs now full of anxiety and reproaches, but the exertion had been more than Mrs. Carey was fit for, and when the occasion for firmness no longer existed, she gave way. She fell heavily into Emma's arms and was carried upstairs. She remained unconscious for a time, that seemed incredibly long, to those that watched her. And the doctors, hurriedly sent for, did not come. It was next day, when she was a little better, that Miss Watkin got some explanation out of her. Philip was playing on the floor with his... playing with the floor of his mother's bedroom, and neither of the ladies paid attention to him. He only understood vaguely what they were talking about, and he could not have said why those words remained in his memory. I wanted the boy to have something to remember me by when he grows up. I can't make out why she ordered a dozen, said Mr. Carey. Two would have done. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. Mr. Carey is so frugal (laughs) that he's even begrudging that the mother took 12 photos instead of two because he's thinking she could have saved that money and he could have inherited it. I bet. All right, have your say over on the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.